0: just before you start listening to this podcast a reminder that we have a special subscription offer you can get 12 issues of the spectator for 12 pounds as well as a 20 pound amazon voucher go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer
1: hello and welcome to the spectators book club podcast I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to say I have two guests. We're going to be talking about race, racism and racial identity. And my first guest is Thomas Chatterton-Williams, the American writer whose new book is called Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race, and also by the broadcaster and scientist Adam Rutherford, whose new book's called How to Argue with a Racist. We don't normally do how-to books, but we're making an exception here. Thomas, if I could start with you... The beginning of of your book describes a kind of complete identity U-turn, in some sense. You spent most of your childhood and young manhood very invested in the idea of being black. And what changed? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on, first of all.
2: I grew up in the 80s and 90s in New Jersey. My father is a black man from the segregated South. From Texas, and he's really old enough to be my grandfather, so he came up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s before civil rights. He's a sociologist by training. My mother's white, Anglo Saxon Protestant, also sociologist by training. And I grew up in a household where the idea that a drop of black blood makes you black was both considered as obviously a fiction, but also very real and salient in our lives, and my parents raised my brother and I to see our household as a black household. We lived on uh, the white side of town in a segregated, informally segregated suburban area. I was, you know, I wasn't treated as though I was mixed. I didn't know people that define themselves as biracial. I was accepted by the black uh, kids that I knew as black, and I wasn't accepted by the white kids as, as white. So um, racial identity was both a very contradictory and paradoxical thing for me, but also pretty simple until really until my 30s, when I found myself married to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed French woman living in Paris and suddenly becoming aware that our children may very well come out looking not very mixed at all. Even though I still really believed that a drop of black blood would make their identity be black, I was starting to become aware that the world might not see them the way that I thought that they would be. So about a year before my wife got pregnant, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that my children would be black. And in retrospect, I realized that I was writing that piece to persuade an audience of one, and that was really myself. <laughs> so when my wife finally did uh, end up giving birth, it both came as a surprise and a kind of inevitability to me that the doctor, uh, when she said, I can see the head, she said, I can see a, a tête d'oreille, a golden head, was, was suddenly visible. And I, you know, my, my, my daughter, Marlo, she came out looking... Essentially Swedish, you know, and this kind of—it's not that I believed now that I had white children. It's that for the first time in my life, in a way that I couldn't see in my own household growing up, the fiction of race was thrust into my consciousness uh, in a way that I couldn't kind of evade anymore.
1: Yeah, and the fiction of race—this idea that there's a scientific basis for it—is is kind of the core of your book, isn't it, Adam?
0: Yes, yes. So. I mean, I suppose it's about identity in a, in a similar sort of theme. But it's, I suppose, geneticists, population geneticists, and evolutionary biologists look at identity as as a manifestation of of population wide trends, and so it's much less about an individual. There are so many striking parallels between what Thomas has written and and what I've written, although they they sort of approach from a from almost you know polar opposite directions but trying trying to understand what it what race race means from a biological perspective which is actually not that much and this notion that that for a long time most of the 20th century we've described race as a social construct which is often used as a as a sort of bat to beat that that idea people have expressed that idea with on the grounds that people often say it's just a social construct, which is kind of a nuts thing to say because you know time is a social construct and money is a social construct, and almost every human interaction that everyone has are social interactions and not biological interactions. We only have biological interactions with the people we have sex with, so we're having a social interaction now. So, so to, to say race is yeah. merely a social Make that construct is radio. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I apologise to the to the listeners. This is a family friendly. Podcast. Wow, this has gone wrong quick, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so to dismiss the social construct as being of little importance is, I think, an error. But the question is well, what is the biological basis of the differences that we see between people? And sometimes, one of the things I talk about a bit in the book is that after the events of the Second World War, sociology and genetics and behavioral psychology, they sort of swing back and forth between biological determinism and blank slatism. And we get into a lot of wrangles about that. And as ever, in these sorts of heavily polarized conversations, debates, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, And blank racism is clearly wrong. People are different to each other. We look different. We look different around the world. The way people look different does geographically and culturally cluster. But then the question becomes, well, are those differences, how are they genetically encoded? And what is the weight of them? in terms of behaviour. So we very quickly get into quite sticky territory because the way they manifest in sort of popular discourse in public discussions is, well, are black people better at sprinting? Because every every 100 metres runner since 1984 has been of West African descent, descended from the enslaved in the Americas. Are Jewish people more intelligent? Well, 144 Science Nobel Prizes compared to zero by black people... That is one metric which tells a lot of people that they are. But, the, but a lot of the point of the book is to say, well, you take those numbers and as a scientist, that is the beginning of an inquiry for a racist. That's the end of
1: that conversation. And one of the things that comes out actually in both of your books is this notion that the categories by which we kind of divide, the taxonomies into which we divide races, you know, the sort of I guess black, white, you know, red, Asian, you know, the, the various subcategories are a kind of relatively recent invention. I mean, can you talk a little bit about your sort of apprehension of that and why you think it came about?
0: The simple answer is yes, they are relatively modern descriptions. There are plenty of references to skin colour in classical times and up until the what we refer to as the Enlightenment. But in terms of you know, principles of ethnocentrism of of the othering of people—they tend not to be predicated on skin colour, and they're much more based on uh, religiosity or language or culture or geography. And it is in the European expansion during the beginning of of empire where my argument is, uh, which is which is not—I I haven't invented this argument. This is a well well-established argument in the history of science and history of race is that science gets co-opted, marshaled into colonialism, into, into empire expansion, in order to justify the othering and the subjugation of people. So it's at that point you get a lot of European proto-scientists or philosophers or thinkers, people like Voltaire and Kant, and Linnaeus is a key part of this, so he invents taxonomy for all biology, but included within that gives us Homo sapiens and five subspecies, well, initially four, and then a fifth one is added. And as you just described, they are effectively African, black, East Asian, what we might call East Asian now, Native American... And european now the primary determinant determinant of those categorizations is pigmentation it's just skin color but in linnaeus his first descriptions he also includes quite a lot of behavioral and value judgments so it says you know black people are black and they're also lazy and ruled by caprice right east asians are yellow and they are haughty and greedy uh, native americans are red and they are governed by customs and stubborn. And Europeans, well, they're white, and they're governed by rules and honour and, and they're generally... Logic. <laughs> yeah, logic, and they're and generally they're totally super awesome. awesome. Yes. So every single one of these categorizations, which includes you know, heroes of the Enlightenment like Voltaire, who was a terrible racist, who thought that black people were a different species, they all are naturally hierarchical. And, and see if you can guess who is at the top of the hierarchy in every single one of them until we get into the 20th century. So it is, a, it is in that sense, these are modern constructs. The question then become, becomes, does biology recapitulate those ideas? And the answer is complex. I mean,
2: you know, white supremacy, I'm interested in, in the book about how white supremacy as an ideology really comes out of the collision of, of Europe and Africa through the slave trade. And it's not that old. And, you know, in the very beginning of the colonies, of the colonial experience, blacks, whites, and Indians, poor whites, blacks, and Indians could live on, or Native Americans could live on equal terms and could intermarry. And even racial identity in the beginning passed through the identity of the father If you were a white father and you had a mixed race child with a black woman, that child's identity was white. That flipped. And that flipped (laughs) not for um, a biological reason, but for um, reasons of inheriting property. It flipped for reasons of. Economics not and nothing to do with blood and skin. At some point, it became that you you know it became the privilege of the slave owner to have um, illegitimate children with slaves and not to be responsible for that, and actually to increase his wealth by having more slaves
0: instead of more this is, heirs. This one, another one of the shared points in our book, and when you talk about mm-hmm. you know words like quadroon and octroon mm-hmm. and the one drop rule, which is been in America for justifying whether you're black or not. The key case is well, it's Elizabeth Key Grinstead, where this, this idea gets flipped around weirdly an ancestor of Johnny Depp.
1: What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Grinsteads have wow. been have
0: been well studied, but the idea that you talk about and I talk about in both both the books is hypodescent. Yep. And it does get flipped in the in the late 17th century. Uh, the weird, the super weird repercussions of that are Thomas Jefferson's children are both black and born enslaved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And he was a president.
2: I'm interested in Linnaeus and what you were talking about, the, the original categories. But then I'm fascinated as an American with the ways in which there was no such idea of monolithic whiteness until very recently. And that Southern Europeans, Italians and Spaniards, Greeks were considered by the Protestant elite to be a different race. And also Celtics, were, the Irish were considered an inferior race kind of related to whites but an inferior racial group than Anglo-saxons were so the th- this idea now that we live with where an Ashkenazi Jew a Slav a Sicilian an English descended Protestant are all all partake in something called whiteness this enormous abstraction I mean that's that's really recent. There are Latinos that now come into this kind of concept of whiteness. I mean, this is something that really just works in America as a contrast to blackness, which is a necessary component of the binary.
1: If I'm expressing right, an argument that both of your books goes in the direction of is saying that we can in some way go beyond categorizing people by these crude, traditional, linear definitions of race. That you know, And I suppose one question i'd want to raise is okay if you're saying you know you're going to deconstruct in the proper sense of it you know i pull it apart by exposing its internal contradictions things like the idea of blackness does that make it harder to resist supremacy in the sense if you want to say black lives matter you'd need to have a vocabulary to say what a black life looks like and what they have in common with each other
2: yeah i get pushback. back from racists, and I get some pushback from some anti-racists as well, because on the left there's a kind of drive to have a somewhat essential concept of racial identity. I think that when you say something like Black Lives Matter, all of that can be arrived at without language that uh, veers into the biological or the essential. I think that it might be more effective pragmatically, and it might even get us to the kind of society we hope to live in if We could say that, you know, blacks are disproportionately shot and killed by police or victims of police brutality. But in America, all citizens are actually like overwhelmingly brutalized by the police Uh, in in brute numbers. Whites are shot and killed the most in proportional terms. Native Americans are shot and killed the most. So what we actually need is like a universalist, you know, anti-police brutality movement that you know everybody can buy into and see themselves in i think that that's the kind common
1: category that can be identified here yeah is i the think police. i think
2: that i understand the urge for these categories i understand that there's a kind of experience that overwhelmingly correlates to the oppression of a group like blacks in america but I think that ultimately, language doesn't just describe reality; it creates reality too. So, when we reify these concepts through terms like "there are black lives," that means that there are essentially uh, white lives. And I and I think that that's something that we have to try to move beyond.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And it, you know, one of the main themes of my book is is that you can't use science as a tool in defense of of these sorts of racial categorizations. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of nuance within what I just said there. But in reference to what Thomas was just saying. African-Americans, black Americans, is not a genetically coherent group of people for a number of historical reasons. Their ancestry is primarily derived from five countries, maybe a few more from the west coast of Africa, who were taken during transatlantic slavery. The numbers of which are, you know, estimates of something like 12 million people, half of whom died en route half of whom were in South, went to South America and Central America and the Caribbean, and half of whom are, are the primary ancestors of 42 million African Americans right now. Now, w- when it comes to the biological... Evolution and modern genetics has has decreed and shown us that there is more genetic diversity within Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together. And that simply betrays the fact that we are an African species. Homo sapiens evolved in Africa before migrating out and spreading over the rest of the world. So, you know, one of the slightly glib science factoids that I like to say is that what that means is that there is more genetic difference between a man from Angola and a man from Ethiopia than there is between a man from Angola and a Maori or, or a Chinese person. And and that is just factually correct. So what that means in terms of the relationship between African ancestors of the enslaved ancestors of, of African-Americans today is that these are not a cogent, coherent group of people. But you're quite right that you know 42 million African Americans identify themselves as African Americans, which but can is fine. I just add something? Yeah, there's a further
2: complexity in a society like America, which is that virtually no African Americans are fully descended from Africa. At this point, the average African American has 20 to 25 percent uh, Western European ancestry, usually uh, Anglo-Saxon. So th- they're a fundamentally mongrel group to begin with, as are white Americans. White Americans are not like Europeans, white Americans have significant amounts of African DNA in them, often without...
1: Yeah, They're chugging it. milk on those YouTube videos. Yeah, that got. And, well, but some of, them are, some of them on the, those, yeah. those
2: videos are getting surprised and are getting, yeah, are getting yeah, pretty upset like, when probably. they do their 23andMe. Well, you did the 23andMe yeah.
1: DNA t- test. I mean, it's for this because, Adam, you're quite sceptical about the values of the DNA test, oh, yeah. but Thomas, you did... You submitted yourself to one What was the value of that for you? Well, I want to say, I probably agree with Adam that I'm skeptical about some of this stuff too,
2: because three years ago, when I was writing the book, I did a 23andMe test. It gave me a breakdown of my ancestry with a lot of mystery involved still, saying I was somewhat like 39% West, Sub Saharan African descended, 57 point something percent, broadly Northern European, with a lot of British, a lot of French, and mostly German. But like I said, like 5% Swedish. And then uh, when I had the book excerpted in the New York Times Magazine this fall, I had to recheck the numbers for fact-checking purposes. And when I logged back in... With three years time between, the numbers had slightly changed, and I had gone from five percent Swedish to point oh five percent Swedish or point five percent Swedish. Well, the numbers changed. My, my, since my, my, my European blood. ancestry had raised, and my African ancestry now I was forty percent. Now I was Senegambian more mm. than than another part of Africa which I'd been associated with before, and the French and the British ancestry changed. And I realized this this is like. A, uh, it's not. I don't want to say it's nonsense, but it's so inexact. As yeah. So the be, reason
0: for that is because more people, more people are participating. Yeah. So the databases are made up of paying customers. So the resolution is determined by how many people have actually. So like Patient zero had
1: more or less nothing on there. Right. And exactly. some, of, <laughs> some of the some of
0: the geographical characterizations that are given are based on, you know, a hundred people. in right? Particularly in well, places like Indonesia, it's entirely determined by the number of. Participants who I, who live there or identify as you know whatever that location is. So my, my my story is not that different. My father is from Yorkshire, and so that half of my genome is broken down into a, you know amazing resolution, which includes you know two percent Swedish, Danish, English, French, you know generally Northern European. And my mother is Guyanese Indian, and because relatively few Indians, let alone Guyanese Indians have de- taken these tests, that, that bit of my genome, 50% of my genome is represented by a single block, right? There is no resolution within that. 1.3 billion Indians are basically all the same, whereas we can tell the difference between someone from Malmo and, and some, yeah, someone, from, exactly. someone from Uppsala on
1: that side of it. Don't waste your money on these tests, kids.
0: Well, I, I, I'm, it's not up to me to say that, but yes. Um, <laughs> they just don't say what you think they're going to say. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, back to the point you're making, which is that the mixture of African-Americans, which is as a result of the, this peculiar history of people, the ancestors being taken during slavery and, and the subsequent mixing that's happened since then, is, means that African-American is a, is a distinct cultural group, but it's not a distinct biological group. Some of the, some of the things that when you get into these arguments, you know, on places like Twitter, people sometimes say, well, you know, sickle cell. Exactly is a is a black disease and it does occur at a higher frequency in african americans than it does in non in in european americans that is undoubtedly true it does occur in africans at a higher frequency than everyone else on on earth but again africa is a large place with more than a billion people in it and what sickle cell is is a an evolutionary adaptation to malaria And so where it exists is in malarial zones, which is a belt across the middle of Africa, not the whole of Africa, not all black people, and also occurs in Greeks and South Americans and uh, Indians. And there are no racially specific diseases. Tay-Sachs is another example, which was identified in two Jewish families, one in the UK, one in America in 1882, I think it is from memory. And they were identified in Jewish families, became known as the Jewish disease as a result. Two years later, the same disease was identified in a non-Jewish family, but because they weren't Jewish, it was given a different name.
2: Also, I mean, it gets really tricky because people will say, well, well Jewishness is not a race, but then they will say, but this is a racially encoded disease. And and the the, kind, the language is slippery around race. There's a lot of having having it both ways. Uh, some of the same people that will argue that Jewishness is not a race will use racially encoded diseases as a, like, like Tay-Sachs as a way of... Saying that race is not exactly a social construct either yeah it's, it's yeah so that's
0: slippery. right, I, you know we've got, we got clustering problems here, and this is a uh, to richard Dawkins' phrase the the, um, the tyranny of the discontinuous mind, which is a very human characteristic. We do like putting things in boxes. Unfortunately, both genetics and human history refuse to comply to these categorization attempts, and so you know we can say, for example, that, that African Americans as a whole have genetic predispositions to diseases such as hypertension and um, heart disease and obesity, which occur at a higher frequency than in non-African American populations and also in African populations. So that that is an evolution that has occurred within the last, you know, four centuries or so. And the reasons for that are not necessarily clear. Some of them may be to do with the introgression of those genes from Europeans themselves. But that's not a, that's not a black thing because it those those frequencies do not occur in Africa. That is simply a trajectory because African-Americans have had a different evolutionary history from their African forebears. Another example of this is, is you know, to go back to the sprinting, the notion that there is a biological and innate advantage that some African-American men have, and that is as a result of natural selection or artificial selection Because of slavery. This is a well, well well-established argument. Slavery bred better athletes because being strong and uh, having explosive strength would be a good thing for a slave to have. Also being able to run away fast. (laughs) That's not cool. Anyway, it it doesn't work scientifically. It doesn't – that's not really enough time for those sort of genes to become fixed in a population – the second thing is that while there is a biological basis to being to having to being talented at, at explosive energy sports, it's not universally distributed amongst African Americans. Unfortunately,
2: not. <laughs> but also, you know, I mean, it's so difficult to separate environmental factors from natural factors. I mean, look at the history of boxing; it's been dominated by every group that was socioeconomically on the lowest rung at different yeah. points in history, from from Jews at first, Italians to, to, to blacks, and now now it's it's Latinos. Jews She's super good
0: at basketball as well in mm-hmm. the 30s and, yeah. and 40s as well. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. And then, you know, there's the swimming argument as well. Which, so, you know, if you, if you look at the numbers and you say, well, there hasn't been a white man in the Olympic 100 meters final since Alan Wells won it in 1980 and the Americans weren't there that year because of the Cold War. Well, what is the number of black men that have competed in the Olympics in the equivalent race in swimming, which is the 50 meter freestyle? You know the answer to that? I'm thinking zero. It's one actually. Oh, really? It's Cullen Jones in two thousand twelve. <laughs> Got the bronze here in here in London. And so you go, well, hold on a minute, what, what is the reason for that? There is a well established idea that black people can't swim and there is a biological basis for that. Many, many times. Until
2: you go to the Caribbean. <laughs> And you see people swimming so all over the in place. Right, right, right.
0: But, but uh, there will be listeners to this podcast who are listening to this bit of the conversation and saying, yeah, but that's because their bones are denser than, than white people's. That is a well-established myth that a lot of black people have about why oh yeah, African Americans often they do, do think that swimming is not for us yeah yeah it is just biological in, yeah in, incoherent swim America did a survey of the main reasons why African Americans swim at a much lower rate than, than white Americans because because it, it's, it's something like seventy percent of, of African Americans don't swim and when they looked at the reasons given they are things like lower socioeconomic status because swim, swim schools tend to be after schools. After segregation in '64, swimming pools tended to be built in, in affluent areas anyway, so there's access there. The third reason was lack of role models. We just described there are no black famous swimmers, therefore that, that, that doesn't have a knock-on effect. And then the top reason, which it's kind of so obvious that it pains me to say it, the main reason why African-Americans don't swim at a high frequency is because they weren't taught how to swim. That is the single biggest factor in learning how to swim, is being taught how to swim. And, and it's not some mythical, you know, bone density drowning factor, which doesn't even exist. There is, it's, it's based on a, a misunderstanding of osteoporosis in different ethnicities. It's not that at all. And the outcome of this, this isn't trivial, the outcome of this is that black children drown at three times the rate of white children because they do not swim. In this case, institutional racism based on on a misunderstood biology, or a made-up biology, is literally lethal. And yet, this is this has been bought into not just by white Americans, but black. I got I've got friends here in the UK who are black, African English people who
1: say, "Well, we don't swim because our bones are, bones are too dense. We sink." Wow, <laughs> that's nuts. So, well, that that deserves to be broadcast wide. One of the most transfixingly counterintuitive things in your book, Adam, is this idea, I've had to check I've got the words right, the genetic iso point. Mm. Can you explain this? Because it, it's very, you know, to th- those people who love to trace their ancestries and figure out where they come from, this sort of makes complete nonsense that, doesn't it? How-
0: yeah, it's it's not an easy concept to get, you get your head around. And I've given this, and this is one of my standard lectures, both at university and in public, and I've done it a, a thousand times, and every time I say it, I'm, I still have to scratch my head because it's utterly baffling. Sorry to the audience. There is a biological fact, which is that all people have two parents. We're okay with that. Yeah? There's another biological fact, which is that there are more people alive today than at any point in history. And some some people sometimes talk about how there are more people alive now than have ever lived. That's also not true. We estimate that the number of humans that ever existed is about 107 billion. Even with a population of 7 or 8 billion, we're still way, way behind the number of people who've actually existed. Right, so you've got these two apparently conflicting facts. Because if everyone's had two parents, the number of ancestors you have just doubles as you go back through time. So by the beginning of the 18th century, each one of us will have many thousands of ancestors and if you keep going back, by the time you get to a 1,000 years ago, one individual, you, Thomas, will have more than a trillion ancestors. <laughs> 40 generations. The number is basically 2 to the power of 40. Wow. Right Now, of course, a, a trillion people is more people than have ever existed by orders of magnitude, so that cannot be correct. The correctness in it is that you have a trillion positions on your family tree mm-hmm. and that you're actually descended from the same people multiple times. So your great-great-great-grandmother might be your great-great-great-grandmother twice or three times. And the third... So mm-hmm. a root that comes from her mm-hmm. produces offspring, which produce offspring, and eventually they come back to you mm-hmm. because it turns out that your parents are actually fourth cousins. Mm-hmm. And and the truth is that pretty much all of us are probably fourth or fifth or sixth cousins anyway. So you have that many, that many positions on your family tree but far fewer actual people on your family tree in those positions. And what that means is our family trees expand from us upwards, and then they begin to straighten up, and then they begin to co- collapse on themselves. Mm-hmm. We call, This is called coalescence theory. What The maths that falls out of this is that eventually lines of your family tree that come from you and diverge begin to cross through individuals, And then they begin to cross through multiple individuals multiple times. And eventually, at the genetic isopoint, all lines of your ancestry cross through every single individual in your ancestry. Well, okay, (laughs) I can can see...
1: We are literally descended from everybody who lived on Earth at a certain point.
0: Yeah, so so when we do Europe, the isopoint comes out at about 1,000 years ago. So what that means is that if you were alive in the 10th century in Europe and you have living descendants today, then you are the ancestor of all Europeans today. And we think that about 70 to 80% of Europeans have living descendants today. So you take, you know, the, the example I always give is Charlemagne, and the reason we use royalty is because we know that Charlemagne has living descendants today. Richard Branson is one of them, because he's done his family tree. Christopher Lee is one of them, because he did his family tree. We know that Charlemagne has living descendants Johnny Depp as well, surely. I'm sure that Johnny Depp (laughs) is in there. But no, Johnny Depp has to be in there because we all are. And if you have a European ancestor, then Charlemagne is your ancestor because he's beyond the isopoint. point. So this is another reason why the 23andMe's are of limited, trivial interest to me. Because I get emails literally every month from white people saying, I'm descended from Vikings. Or oh, oh, I'm descended from Celts. And that's great, because everyone is. I mean, literally everyone is. If you have European ancestry, you have Vikings in your family trees. So this is the point about it being semi-meaningless. You know, And, and East Asian people say, well, I, I've discovered that I'm descended from Genghis Khan. Yep, everyone... More than in, half the
2: world is. Or is yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, and that's not even because he was particularly fecund due to his behaviour. You only need to have one child whose descendants make it through to the present, in order for you to also to be the ancestor of literally everyone. And the world point. so Europe is about a thousand years ago, the global isopoint is about the 14th century BC. So there isn't anyone on Earth alive today who isn't descended from everyone alive in the 14th century BC. So at which point you go, well, you know, these taxonomies are kind of, I don't know, are they... They're kind of bonkers. They they sort of that that's what we mean by social constructs. These we are so inbred, and we are, so, are the then, arbitrariness of yeah, the boundaries. Yeah,
1: yeah. Thomas, you talk about wanting to go beyond race, but but that you make a distinction between, I think, resigning from race or marrying out and passing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you talk a bit about what? you know, what yeah. your counsel of perfection is here, because you...
2: Sure. Well, I think passing... I have children who... I have a son now, too, who's 18 months old and equally Swedish-looking uh, to his sister. These children, if they wanted to, they could simply walk into the street and identify themselves as white, and there would be no one who would question their, their racial identity if that was what they wanted to, to use. That would be a kind of passing as far as I'm concerned. And I think that that does nothing to subvert the status quo or the way that we that we, we make race now. But I think that if they were to go out into the street and they were to tell people that they are not white, and they were to have a very specific conception of who they are, who, who they're descended from, and why these categories fail to capture them, or you or Adam or anyone else for that matter, then I think that that would be a kind of achieved perspective and a kind of subversion of the way that we think about race. And so I, there would be nothing that would be different about who they are, but it would be a very different kind of way of, of interacting with the terms. And I think it would be a much more powerful way. So I think in the book, I read a lot about how ultimately it's not up to me, but I would feel some sense of disappointment if my children allowed themselves to have this kind of very comfortable, unquestioning white identity that, that, that the world at every
1: turn tries to tries to make available to them. Your dad's sense of himself as black was very important to him, wasn't it? I mean,
2: it wasn't. It wasn't. I, I want to stress the kind of ambivalence that he and a lot of black Americans have, especially of his generation and older. He was profoundly aware of two things at the same time: that race is not real, and that race has profoundly harmed him and been a factor in his life, and was thus made real my father doesn't believe that blackness is an in essence in any in any way but you know he also doesn't completely meet me at the at at the argument or the thesis of retiring from race either because i think he would feel that retirement from racial categories wasn't an option for him he's kind of intrigued and interested in the what he sees as a kind of freedom that's been available to me and i think he thinks that part of that freedom was Attained in my having left America. I, I, I think so, too. I'm not sure that I would have arrived at some of these conclusions, even with a white wife, had I remained in, in the all-American you know skin game that's played back home. What's available to me in France is a kind of identity that's first and foremost based on nationality before other things come into play. And also there's the mystery of race. Race is, I I talk a lot in the book about how race is locally constructed and locally meaningful and certain characteristics, physical characteristics signify different things depending on where you are. In France, people glance at me and without knowing I'm American, they often assume I might be from North Africa or something like that. So there's an ambiguity to to my identity that opens up paths for freedom that I think my father thinks are linked to leaving America so to get back to the original question I don't I don't know if that answers it
1: does a bit I I was going to say you take issue which I was interested in with you know one of the most fated people discussing race in the states Tanahisi Coates and you kind of take a very different view from him on how how to combat racism and how to a certain identity that well yeah I start um, from supremacy I mean is that because he's he's still in the states and as you say the skin game do you think
2: Partially. I do think he's even said that because he flirted with the idea of moving to France and then he ultimately rejected it and said that his his battles were back home or something like that. But prior to his astronomic success with Between the World and Me, he was interested in a book that was very meaningful to me called Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields. Which makes the argument that race kind of works in our society the way witchcraft has worked in other societies where there's no such thing as witches, but you can die from being deemed a witch in a society that believes in witches, so I think Tennesseesse Coates is actually more of a supple thinker, but he doesn't leave much room for uh for what I would think of as like human agency in in black life. There's a kind of fatalism in his in his worldview that I reject. With Coates, I mean, it's difficult. He's probably the best version of some of this argument. He likes this strain from Baldwin, which is that people who believe they're white, and that so long as you believe you're white, we're all doomed, and you're not free either. But then he also writes something in, like, The First White President about Donald Trump. He writes about this kind of, this bloody heirloom of white supremacy and the eldritch energies. Yeah, These are his words that, like, whiteness releases. And it gets very close to making uh, whiteness a kind of an essence. And where I take issue with this kind of language and writing is that it, for a very different reason to very different ends, it tracks with an idea of whiteness as an inherent kind of specialness, whether it's good or ill that like white supremacists and racists also like julius Evola and lots of people also buy into richard spencer people this this idea that there's something about being white that you can't get rid of that's permanent which i have to to believe that it can be transcended and overcome
0: so this is you know this comes back to the 23 me's and, and the ancestry testing because that idea of essentialism and superiority is is obviously baked into white nationalists or white supremacists um, by their very name. I spend a lot of time on Stormfront and other really racist websites, 8chan and 4chan, and they are obsessed with population genetics. They're obsessed with these tests in a way that was a complete surprise to me when I started started looking at this a few years ago. Because it is absolutely... White purity is is an essential characteristic of being white, and it's associated with those old you know from Linnaeus and Voltaire onwards that whiteness is also comes with these characteristics so there's a inherent link between whiteness and your ancestry being northern european and these characteristics of industriousness and wealth generation and honor and and all those sorts of things so that the reliance on a sort of misunderstanding of genetic ancestry is really now baked into those into those websites and the discussions on places like stormfront very interesting thing has happened in the last couple of years, which is that for the first time, sociologists have begun studying what happens when people who identify as white supremacists and actual Nazis or racists discover via these tests that they do have non-Northern European ancestry. And you get a range of answers. I cannot deny that I find it quite amusing when this happens. And the, these two sociologists in the states Panoski and Donovan accounted for more than three thousand of these comments in a paper that was published a couple of years ago and what they do what they do in there there's a, there's a whole range of responses which range from the sort of scientifically informed try a different company because you can get different results from different companies because they've got different databases to base them on and then they get progressively more unhinged twenty three me is owned by Jews, and the Jews will deliberately sow misinformation into their results in order, to, in, in order to breed racial disharmony. I don't really know why they would want to do that, but that, that, is a, that is a recurrent theme in these websites. And then they get down to the, I mean, really nasty, you should commit suicide because you're obviously not white, so you can't be part of our team. And then weird ones. There's one, and I quote it directly in the book, and I think he's, one guy says, you know, someone's falling apart. He's saying, I've just done my test, and it says, I've got Ashkenazi Jew. In me. And the responses are things like, look, look in the mirror. Do you see a Jew? If not, you're fine. And I was reading this and thinking, well, this is insane because the tests, you're using the test to, to suggest that there is some biological in, innateness. And when the results come back in a way that you don't approve of, you can just ignore that and you have a purely culturally self-identified way of saying, well, I'm not Jewish because I'm deciding that I'm not Jewish, even though the test that I've just taken, which is scientifically dubious anyway, didn't say that in the first place. The point being, you know, it's the old Jonathan Swift line that you cannot reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. Some of
2: these people they actually throws them deeper into white supremacy they actually they believe that this like little bit of non-whiteness in them you know is just it's just like uh, it's motivation to embrace their whiteness. Uh, When I was writing for the New Yorker a couple years ago a piece on the French far-right thinkers who influenced the American alt-right I ended up having to interview Richard Spencer who's the corner of the term alt-right and I asked him if it mattered if uh you know if someone was mixed, how does that fit into his? Worldview. And he said, well, you know, if you're an Italian woman and you're, and you're invested in Western culture and Christianity and you're, you're living a good European life, I'm not going to be a stickler over whether you have 4% Arab DNA in you or something like that. I'm not going to let that ruin, <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're white. You can, you can participate in the whiteness. There is no reasoning out of the, this kind of racial I
0: mean, the Spencer yeah. thing, that's very interesting. I wonder when he said that to you because. 2017. Okay, so early before that, he published his uh, 23andMe results. Which yeah, showed, he was very
2: proud of being 99.9%. Yeah. But whatever,
0: then yeah. made, the, made the error of you can share your 23andMe mm-hmm. results on 23andMe. And he made the error of not making that private. And in fact, when you look at it, he has Middle Eastern and North African ancestry. Does he really? Within the last 200 years. I didn't see that. And I wonder if his response was cut, was, was because <laughs> actually, oh, hold on a minute. Uh, actually, it's fine. It's, it's actually, <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably fine as long as you still... You know. Oh wife. wow! Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't commented on that. So he made a
2: loophole for himself. But I think so. Is yeah.
0: It? I mean, the last time I looked, Spencer had a glass of milk in his Twitter bio. Yes, he does. Yeah. Which is this reference to I, I, this is another lovely one. So, from an evolutionary point of view, mostly only Europeans have evolved the ability to process milk after weaning. And we know when that happened it's an amazing piece of natural selection in evolutionary history. one that we really understand occurred something like seven thousand years ago in europe when and in fact after we we became pastoralists and so those milk chugging videos that the New York Times reported on they're all over YouTube of white. Men, Nazis, and and white supremacists <laughs> drinking milk as a demonstration by of the their, gallon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, chugging them like with so their it's really huge tough fat to berries. milk, yeah. yeah, and that's where this milk icon comes from. Actually, though, when you look at the science, every single population, historical evolutionary population that has become pastoralist also has has this same ability. It's called lactose persistence, and so yes, all Europeans. No, most East Asians, no, most Africans, apart from the Tutsi, the Ethiopian pastoralist, Middle Eastern pastoralist. You know, lactase persistence occurs all over the world as long as you were a pastoralist in your
1: ancestry. Again, something that those guys probably haven't looked
0: closely at.
1: Well, (laughs) let's hope they're listening to this, but they very probably aren't. Um. (laughs) Adam Thomas, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you did we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us well especially if you liked it if you hated it don't, don't feel you have to review it and equally if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode